We're back for our third episode. My name is Linnea. I'm Grace. And we're your hosts for the next 45 minutes or so. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm a little bit coldy. Have a little bit of that, you know, winter, winter snuffly nose. Yeah. But just pushing through. Yeah, I think I gave that to you. Yeah, you Last you episode, have. I was hoarse. <laughs> this episode is just a snot factory. It's just, <laughs> just a snot factory. We're off to a great start. A great start. So what are we talking about today, Grace? So today we are doing another one of the new Heritage Minutes, but I really wanted to do this one because I think this person is super, super interesting and I don't think she's really well known. Um, So it's Kenajwak Ashevek. I have no idea who that is. Perfect. You're going to learn so much about her. Okay. Everybody's going to learn a lot about her. So she's an Inuit artist. Okay. So you've probably seen some of her artwork. She's really known for very graphic Kind of depictions of animals, typically, in Inuit life. Okay. Um, she had a stamp in the 1970s. Oh. Um, so she's pretty oh, well known. no. This is, like, coming back to me. Yeah. Like, I feel like I may have seen this minute or seen something of hers. Yeah. So the Heritage Minute, actually, her granddaughter plays her in the Heritage Minute. or oh, Or at neat. least narrates it. I think she just narrates it, actually. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. That's so cool. it's her and her family, and it's a little bit about their life in the Northwest Territory, um, them arriving in Cape Dorset, and then it's about the Cape Dorset Art Co-op. Oh. Where, so, is, where is Cape Dorset? So I believe it's now in Nunavut. Oh, okay. But at the time, that would have been Northwest Territory. So, okay. So not coming to kind of the provinces they stayed in, in the territories. Yeah. So Cape Dorset is still in the territories. But to start off, just going to stand on my soapbox for a minute. All right. I'm ready. (laughs) So there was a poll conducted by Historica Canada in 2018. And the poll asked the people who took it, essentially the, the, the goal of the poll goal of poll was to see how well Canadians could recognize the accomplishments of famous Canadian women. Oh. And the poll presented names of 15 significant Canadian women. Who were they? Are you going to tell me? Do I get to play the game? (laughs) I don't have the full list, but I have some of the results. Okay. So largely they come from the world of politics, civil rights, arts, Participants were asked to identify why each woman was on the list, and only 40% of participants, or sorry, 40% of participants could not identify any of the women's accomplishments. Okay. (laughs) So the most known woman on the survey, do you want to guess who the most well-known, famous Canadian woman is? Or at least they were able to be like, I know why you're famous. Emily Carr. Correct. Yeah. 37%. Second. Oh. Um... She's significant to the Maritimes, oh, is also it, in the arts. Is it? Oh, no. I was going to say Viola, but is it Maud? Yes. Oh, so Lu- Maud or, Lewis. Or not Maud Lewis. Sorry, oh. Lucy Maud Montgomery. Oh, Lucy Maud Montgomery. Yeah. Okay, okay. And then the third was Nellie McClung, who is oh, the suffragette. She is, we'll do an yeah. episode on her later on. Hopefully. That's a good episode. Viola Desmond was the most known woman of color, and yeah. she's at 13%, and that's likely <laughs> due to the fact that she's... On, on a $10, $10 bill. bill. <laughs> <laughs> They're also doing a play about her here in Halifax. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. And it's the world premiere. This uh, this yeah. play is like homegrown in Nova Scotia and hasn't been like this wasn't written somewhere else and performed anywhere else. This yeah. is yeah, going to be 
like shown first live in Canada. Yeah, what's here. it called? Do you remember what it's called? It's Oh, I don't. I feel like if we're going to promote it, we should probably know the name of it. I see. don't. But uh but yeah, it's about her story. It, it the picture looks the pictures are really beautiful that they have of it. It's something it's just I feel like it's one word that's very uh, controlled damage. Uh, That's what it is. Yeah, so okay. if you're in the Halifax area in the next few weeks, go see controlled damage. At Neptune, yeah. <laughs> so the most underrepresented demographic of women was indigenous women. So there were only three yeah. indigenous women who appeared on the survey, and they were one of the co-founders of the Indian Group 7, so like an artistic group Okay. Uh, people, you had a diplomat, and then you have Kinderjoak Ashevek. Okay, their significance to Canadian history and culture was only able to be identified by less than three percent of people who did the survey. Yeah. So participants were also surveyed on more general questions about Canadian education and the representation of women. The results of the poll determined that seventy percent of participants believe Canada can improve upon its education about female accomplishments. And here on Minute Women, we get the unique opportunity to do that, <laughs> which is super fun and exciting. Yay! Yay! <laughs> so today we can start that process. Hold for wild applause. Um, <laughs> I'm excited. So I'm very excited. So today we're going to do the life and achievements of Kenneshwak Ashavek, all around badass Inuit woman. Very cool. So Kenneshwak was born on the 3rd of October in 1927. Okay. And I apologize if I get any of the names wrong. There are a lot of Inuit words, like yeah. place names and people names. I apologize if I get those wrong. Full um, up, full I'm going to dis- do my best. Yeah, full disclaimer. <laughs> full disclaimer. We might pronounce things wrong sometimes. A lot of the time. Please let us know and we will make a full apology. Don't harp on our accents. Yeah. I know what it's like when people call me Linnea. Not a fan. Well, it's really your own fault for picking such a complicated name. I didn't pick it. Oh, you didn't get to pick your name? No. Yeah. So she was born in the Ikarasak camp in South Baffin Island in the Northwest Territory. Ooh. Her mother's name was Siliki and her father's name was Ushuakshuk an Inuit hunter, leader of their camp, shaman, and fur trader. So part of his shaman abilities was to shapeshift into a walrus. Okay. I'm not sure what the significance of shapeshifting is to the Inuit culture, but walrus is an interesting choice. Do, do you think you picked that, or do you think that's, like, picked for you? I'm not going to read into it. All I'm right. sure that someone... <laughs> if someone wants to let us know, let yeah, us know. If let you us know, know anything about that, it would be super interesting. Um, Kenajuak remembered her father as a kind, intelligent, benevolent man. However, he came into conflict with other members of the camp when Kenajuak was six. The exact nature of the conflict is not well known, though it may have been due to an argument between himself and Christian converts in the camp. But it resulted in the murder of her father. Oh, I'd say that's some pretty heavy conflict. Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely like Christianization taking place. And I'm sure if he's a shaman, then that's not particularly well looked upon. But I don't, the the exact nature of the conflict isn't really well known. Right. But murdered. But murder is the result. (laughs) More murder. There's always murder. (laughs) And as always, everyone we're talking about is dead. (laughs) Welcome to Minute Women. Actually, this one's a bit more recent. So some of the people might be alive. But anyways. Oh, that's good. Some of them. Some of them. Who knows? Murder. Siliki was left to raise Kenajwak and her younger brother and sister alone. Siliki moved her small family to live with the children's grandmother, Kauisa. Kauisa. From Kauisa, Kenajwak learned how to sew traditional Inuit clothing from seal skins and adorn them and other items with inset designs she made. To create the inset designs, Kenajwak 
cut out simple shapes from seal skin. Then another smaller piece of skin was dyed in a contrasting color and laid on top of the first piece. The two pieces were sewn together so that the colored piece of skin showed through the piece with the cutout. So kind of like almost like stained glass. Yeah, that's kind of fancy. Yeah. Despite their domestic hobby crafts, Kenajouac stated in an interview in 1983 for Enictatuk magazine that her grandparents discouraged her from other arts like drawing. So she's encouraged in like home economic arts, but not in other kinds of art. Yeah. Her creativity, I guess, is more so encouraged in the things that she should be doing. Yeah, exactly. So at 19, Kenajouac was arranged to marry a man named Johnny Boy Ashevek. Johnny Boy or Johnny Bo, I should say, was a local hunter. Kendrick initially passionately resisted the marriage. After their wedding, she would throw rocks at him whenever he approached her. Her feelings... <laughs> I like her already. <laughs> her feelings toward him softened over time, though, and the couple was known for their deep love for one another. Oh. They had 11 children together, seven of whom lived... Wait. Their marriage got off to a rocky start. Why? Because she threw oh. rocks at him. <laughs> Sorry, that was worth cutting mid-sentence to get that joke in. <laughs> certainly was. I laughed. It certainly I was. I enjoyed it. All Mark's right. laughing. Our producer Mark is laughing. Next line. <laughs> they had 11 children together, seven of whom lived past infancy, and they adopted seven more. So, big family. The family continued to live in a semi-nomadic lifestyle of the Inuit, moving uh, between various summer and winter camps to take advantage of the different resources With throughout the 14 year. 14 kids. Yeah. The 16 at of them. times, yeah. We don't know how many they ever have in the house at any one point, but yeah, a lot of people depended upon them. So this included the camp Kikto, roughly seven miles from Cape Dorset. Oh, cool. Cape Dorset had been the location of a Hudson's Bay Company trading post since 1913. The settlement grew from there and became a permanent settlement filled with southerly goods and technologies which were distributed among the local inhabitants. By the mid-20th century, the changes made at Cape Dorset were dramatic and represented a drastic shift in the lifestyle of the Inuit living in the Canadian Arctic. The hunting camps had been prevalent across the Arctic, which were often composed of several families and were inhabited by no more than 40 individuals. These hunting camps were becoming increasingly hard to maintain due to the declining numbers of caribou. After the Second World War, the Canadian government adopted policies of centralization of indigenous communities across Canada, consolidating dispersed reserve lands onto fewer and more central reserves. Between 1938 and 1953, Anglican and Roman Catholic missions constructed the settlement at Cape Dorset, including a school and a number of homes, and they also brought with them nurses, teachers, and government officials to encourage the permanent settlement of the Inuit. Moving to Cape Dorset represented the end of an ancestral way of life for many Inuit, and many resisted until there were no other options. The generation of adults who moved to Cape Dorset represented a group who had grown up during a time of nomadic living, but transitioned into a new sedentary way of life. And so, yeah, it's like the Canadian government purposefully trying to eradicate Inuit culture. So that's what I was going to ask. Is this so? Is this the eradication of that culture? Yeah. So yeah. it's, and it happens all across Canada. Okay. Yes. And so the, yeah. the idea is that if you can get them to settle, then they'll abandon all of their traditional ways of life and they'll become quote-unquote right. good citizens right and so was that the hope of those like nurses and 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 did you say teachers and, and stuff who were sent there yeah that's definitely part of it right um, okay. trying to provide as many resources as possible to make people stay in one spot and in their minds 
remaining in one place year round means that you're more easily watched by the government essentially. Right. So they can keep tabs on you and make sure you're doing what good citizens do, quote unquote. Okay. It's not great. Not great. The arrival of government employees such as public health nurses changed Kenajuak's life forever. She had just given birth when a nurse arrived at their camp. The nurse tested Kenajuak for several diseases and she was screened positive for tuberculosis. Oh, okay. Like tuberculosis of her, like, like is it a lung infection or was it blood disease? It doesn't say. It seems like she's like a carrier carrier of tuberculosis. tuberculosis. At this point, Kenajuak was forced against her will to leave her family and life in the north and was made to stay at Parc Savard Hospital in Quebec City, where she stayed for over three years from 1952 to 1955. Yeah, my my grandfather actually had tuberculosis. And at that time, he was quarantined to a hospital in Halifax, which was quite far from where they were living. And he was put in a full body cast as to not let the infection out. Uh, so he was in, like, in cartoons when they're in a full body cast with, like, the things that hold up your arms and legs. Yeah. He and my great-grandmother was just at home looking after two young kids. Uh, she had a, a stillborn baby at that time. Like, just a, just super tragic. And he's just in a hospital in a full body cast, not able to move or do anything. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Tuberculosis is not fun. It's not fun. And I don't, I don't know exactly how sick she was. Like, right. We'll get into, like, her time at the hospital a little bit, but it it seems like she was pretty sick at times. Okay. But I I don't know if it's, like, you know, she would have died if she was left in the north or if it's more like you're a carrier, so we're going to, like, treat you for it. Right. We're going to give you our new age medicine. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Okay. So the baby she had just given birth to was adopted by a neighboring family, and several of her children died while she was confined to the hospital. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, during this time at the hospital, Kenajwak fought against tuberculosis and nearly escaped death several times. While she was hospitalized, though, she met the occupational therapist Harold Pfeiffer, who used art to assist the Inuit patients both past the time but also make some extra money through the sale of their art. Pfeiffer taught Kenajwak to do beadwork and make dolls, as well as encouraged her to draw. Kenajwak's work was noticed by an early Inuit art promoter named James Archibald Houston. Now, do I sense a future love interest in either of those men? No. <laughs> All right. Sorry, your uh, your spidey senses are a little They're off. off. <laughs> it's because of the cold. It's because of the cold, yeah. James Houston had studied art since he was a child and was educated at the Ontario College of Art, Académie de la Grande Chaumurie. This is not a good episode for, like, second languages. <laughs> Should really just do strictly English language things. We grew from up now in on. Nova Scotia, where Nova our Scotia. French curriculum was pretty bad Lacks. until recently. Lacks. <laughs> I was here in like actual French communities. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And he also studied in Japan, where he studied printmaking. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So that's he had cool. always been inspired by the works of the Canadian Group Seven, renowned for their works of landscape art. And after serving during the Second World War, Houston became discontent with urban living and set out to find his own Canadian landscapes to paint and sketch. And so what was his, like, where is he from? Uh, I think he's from Ontario. Oh, okay. Originally. Yeah. So he is not, he's not Inuit. No, he is not Inuit. Okay. In 1948, he traveled north by train to Musani, and from there was offered a flight via the Canadian Air Force to Inukshuak. While on the eastern shore of the Hudson's Bay, he first encountered Inuit art. And so, in a short film entitled Songs in Stone, An Arctic Journey Home, uh, Houston stated the following. 
I see this guy coming up to me on the beach, fist out, clenched like this. And by this, he means like a fist in front of your Imagine face. Imagine Grace waving a fist at me right now. <laughs> Very aggressively and menacingly. <laughs> so fist out, clenched like this. And I thought this could lead to a punch in the nose. Instead of that, he opened his fist. And I see for the first time the first Inuit carving I'd ever seen. I took it. I was so excited by it. The following day, I went down to the HBC outpost, and this fellow, Norman Ross, who was the Hudson's Bay manager, I know this thing is 100 or like 150 years old. So I raised it up in front of Ross, and I said, and I opened it up like that. <laughs> this is a very visual conversation <laughs> that's so being had. is shaking her fist and opening close captioning. it over and over <laughs> again. <laughs> And I said, how old do you think this is? Referring to the carving. He says, I don't know, maybe it was carved last night or early this morning just for you. At first I thought, oh, how disappointing. And then I thought some more about it. You don't mean to say that there are people around here who can make things like this today. This marvelous thing I've got in my hand. And he said, yeah, sure, they made it for you. Well, the whole world opened up for me, and I thought anything could happen from this. Life's simple pleasures. I love that he's just a total outsider who's, like, so naive to everything. A little art nerd. Yeah, he's just like, this has to be, like, 100 years old. And then this dude's like, no, they, like, made it for you. Do do you want me to go back there and make you one? We can, like, yeah, like, those people, they make those things all the time. It's just like, yeah, I guess they could make more of them for you. Do you want, like, five? Like, <laughs> Yeah, like, he's totally uninterested. He's like, okay, whatever. This interaction set Houston's life in a new direction. He began collecting Inuit art in exchange for his own paintings or cash, and then would present them in southern galleries, fairs, or to dealers. He worked for several years for the Canadian Handicrafts Guild, which is the best guild. <laughs> when I think guilds, the, I think... Like, the Handicrafts? Yeah. <laughs> when I think guilds, I don't know, I feel like... Metalworkers. The Writers Guild. The Writers Guild. The, like, yeah. Handicrafts. <laughs> Today we're making snowflakes out of coffee filters. <laughs> Next week, clothespin butterflies. <laughs> We've got mini color pom poms, so you can make them super unique. And pipe cleaners for the antenna. <laughs> and googly eyes. <laughs> Can't forget the googly eyes. After several years of collecting Inuit art and promoting its sale in the South, Houston was hired by the federal government as a federal service officer and was posted to Cape Dorset in 1954 to encourage the Inuit there to carve and make graphic prints, a technique Houston had taught some artists there. So is he giving credit to the people who have made this, or is it just all kind of under one umbrella? He's like, these were just made by... No, so James is a cool guy. Okay. James is is a cool guy. So he is just acting as a middleman. Okay. So he's purchasing art from people in the north, and then he's selling it kind of like as an exotic thing. So it's not, you know, the most PC thing in the world. But he isn't bringing them down south and saying, look what I did. Like, oh, okay. He's, they're, they're valuable because they're, like, unique and right. kind of exotic to people that live in southern Canada. Right. So he's not saying, like, I made these. No, no. So look he's representing himself as a dealer. Yeah, <laughs> okay. an art dealer. 
So Houston eventually became fluent in Inuktitut, so the language of the Inuit, and was given the name Somik by the locals, meaning the left-handed one. Oh. Houston is widely recognized for introducing Inuit art to the Western art scene. That's so very he's, cool. Yeah, so he's kind of the first person outside of the Inuit community who was like, oh, this is actually like really amazing, and we should yeah. be you know, showing this alongside all other Canadian art. Yeah, there's a there's a beautiful display of Inuit art on uh, the rooms in Newfoundland. Oh, okay. Uh, in St. John's. It's okay. a, the rooms, a huge art gallery. Okay. And uh, yeah, they have an entire floor kind of dedicated to different Aboriginal and Inuit artists. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like are, are from Newfoundland or uh, from no, from all over from Canada. All over. Oh, okay. Yeah, from That's all over cool. Canada. And there's some carvings like you're talking about. It's, okay. It's cool. Yeah. It's beautiful cool. stuff. So Houston appreciated the art of Kenajwak, and when she returned to the North in 1955, Houston and his wife Alma encouraged her to keep producing art. Okay. Kenajwak adopted art as a means of supporting her family financially, as did her husband Johnny Boy, who began carving and drawing. So Kenajwak recalled in 2008, when I first started making a few lines on paper, my love Johnny Boy smiled at me and said, Inum, which means I love you. I just knew inside his heart that he almost cried knowing that I was trying my best to say something on a piece of paper that could bring food to our family. I guess I was thinking of the animals and the beautiful flowers that covered our beautiful untouched land. And to think she started off by throwing Throwing rocks rocks at at him. (laughs) (laughs) Tales old as time. (laughs) Eventually the two would collaborate on pieces of art together. Oh, I love that. I know. It's actually really sweet. This is is the first time we've had a sweet kind of story. (laughs) There's not a plague yet. Well, well, I mean, we've already had tuberculosis. Had tuberculosis but. <laughs> yeah. So Kenetuak started by decorating seal skins and beading. However, she was encouraged by Houston to draw. Art media was gendered in the Inuit communities, with drawing and carving considered more masculine under- undertakings. Okay. And so it kind of goes back to what her grandparents were saying of like, right. those kinds of art aren't for women. Yeah. The types of art that you should do is like beading and sealskin. Beadwork like and, and clothing and stuff. That's Exactly. Kenajwak was pushed by Alma Houston, so James's wife, in particular to keep drawing. Kenajwak would state that she was not good at drawing or that drawing was man's work. But whenever Alma would visit her, the paper Kenajwak was left with would be filled with sketches. Through Alma, her work was sold to dealers, guilds, and the Hudson's Bay Company. It was only when James and Alma Houston asked people to do artwork that I started drawing and carving soapstone, Kenajwak later said. Her drawings would then be made into prints. In Cape Dorset, men were hired to hand-carve the drawings of artists into stone. These reliefs would then be brought to Houston and later Terry Ryan, who was, I believe, the manager of kind of the the art shop there, and they would be then made into prints. So paint and ink would be spread on the carved stone, and then the paper was placed on top of it to transfer the image. Each print would be marked with the signature of the artist, the stonecutter, and the art shop or co-op. That's so cool. That's yeah. Very, that's very And they show that in the minute. Yeah. So in the minute that. they show someone. Yeah. So she draws something. She brings it to a gentleman who hand carves it. And then they use like paint rollers essentially to roll yeah. like ink and paint on it. And then it's transferred. And that's right. what Houston had learned in Japan. Okay. So it's like a Japanese style art that's being brought to the people uh, in Cape Dorset. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. In uh, 1958, her first print, entitled Rabbit Eating Seaweed, was produced from a design... I love that. Yeah. That's a vibe. (laughs) That's a vibe. 
I've ne- well, you know what? I've never seen a rabbit eat seaweed. So. I haven't either, but I can picture it. Yeah, we're, become, we're it becoming clearly. far more worldly because of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we know so much more. Rabbit eating seaweed. Yeah. So it was re- produced from one of the designs on her sealskin bags at the Cape Dorset print shop. Shortly thereafter, several of her original drawings were reproduced as prints, making her m- work more accessible to a wider audience. So then the reason that printmaking is really promoted is because it requires less time on the artist's right. behalf. So, you know, you can do the drawing and then it gets carved and you can make you know, a limited run of that print right. and you can sell more copies of it. Yeah. So it's more economical for the people that are living of course, there. yeah. In addition to meeting the Houstons, uh, Kenneshwak's career was also propelled by the founding of the West Baffin Cooperative, an art co-op founded in Cape Dorset. So the following is taken from the co-op's website, just like a description of what it is. Okay. So it states, In 1958, discussions around the development of the co-op in Cape Dorset began in earnest, after the printmaking shop began to take off. The project approach to the cooperative development, adopted by the Department of Natural Resources and Northern Development, involved presenting project plans to the community after the area's economic surveys had been completed and allowing the community to accept or reject the idea. So when the community decided to adopt a co-op program, they ended up deciding that they would have a two-objective program. So the, the program serves two purposes. Okay. On one hand, uh, they wanted to encourage community members to participate directly in the economic development of their communities through cooperative that. ownership. I'm yep. here for that. They're here to empower the people. Asset-based community development. <laughs> yes. I'm into it. <laughs> you know all the buzzwords. <laughs> No, I've got a degree in that. Hire me. <laughs> Please hire her. She will be the best employee you've ever hired. All right. Let's not go that far. Right, okay. Let's not get crazy. Let's keep expectations low. Yeah. And then I can just, <laughs> wow. I'll hear a minute, but we like to keep expectations low. Very low. <laughs> so the other half of their program, they sought to build kind of just skills development and a system of st- sustainability through educational programming for cooperative membership, management, and executives. This would be accomplished in order to improve understanding of the cooperative body of the co-op, its relationship to organizations and cooperations external to the community, the roles and responsibilities of the members, including their levels of general technical knowledge. This is awesome. So this, this is, is cool. Yeah. There should be a Heritage Minute just about this. Yeah. And I will say the, the Heritage Minute is, it commits a good chunk of it to the actual yeah. co-op and talking about the co-op. But I think it's something that is so not known. Like, I did know a little bit about this just from like a one Canadian history class I took but everything else like this is such a fundamental like model for yeah. sustainability now and Nova Scotia and this are actually kind of like the hotbeds for the co-op movement yeah it's like really significant to Atlantic Canadian and northern history yeah. so it's really cool it's awesome So art was a big part of the skills development and system sustainability mandate of the Western Baffin Co-op. The Houstons and the co-op manager, Terry Ryan, lived in Cape Dorset and worked with the community to produce art. These pieces would then be sold and the profits brought back to the artists and the co-op. See, that's awesome. Yeah. So Kenneshuak was a founding member of the co-op and her art was instantly captivating to Southern audiences. Do you have any idea like how old she is at this point? Um, so we're in the 50s now, and she was born in 1927, so she'd be in her late 20s, early 30s during this period of time. Yeah. I guess we're kind of getting into the 60s now. Yeah. Yeah, so we're like the late 50s. Okay. So she's a woman. 
She's grown. <laughs> she's a woman. She's a mother. She's a, I almost said husband, but wife. <laughs> she's a wife. <laughs> she, felt, she wears a lot of hats. She wears a lot of hats. <laughs> So these pieces would then be sold and the profits were back back to the artists uh, and Kenneth Joachim's art was really popular. Christine mm-hmm. Lalonde, an expert on Inuit art at the National Art Gallery, described how Kenneth Joachim's work was viewed when it debuted in 1955, 59, okay. excuse me. Okay. She had her own sense of design. She was already willing to let the pencil go because she already had the hand and eye coordination to make the image she already had in her head. When you see her, you realize she doesn't use an eraser. She just sits down and starts to draw. This confidence was prevalent throughout Kenajouac's career. The depictions of animals and nature she became known for were representations of how Kenajouac felt, and not so much how the animals actually looked, which is represented in the Heritage Minute, where the narrator states, I am a happy dancing owl. So in the Heritage Minute, they show some of her pieces of art and her actually making them, and she describes how she feels in the paintings, and she's painting... Uh, probably her, or she's not painting, sorry, she's drawing her most well-known piece, which is the Enchanted Owl. And she's saying that she's like a happy owl, which is mm. like, it's really sweet. It's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. So Kenneth further described her art making process as long and thoughtful. Yes, it takes a long time to decide what to make. Often I have the pencil and paper ready in hand, and then I just sit there for a long time trying to decide what to make. One never knows how well the drawing is going to turn out. <laughs> Throughout the 1960s. She just sounds the best. She's like, really sweet. And if you watch interviews with her, so she never really learned English. This is mostly okay. get, getting translated. Wow. So she's just this, like, very small woman. And she's just, like, so happy to be, like, talking to everybody. And she's, like, it's it's honestly, like, it's such a feel-good, like, like sweetest interviews. Like, grandma ever. Yeah, she's really Aww, sweet. I love that. And, like, also in the face of, like, her life uh, was not easy. Adversity. The face and of like so much adversity yeah. being taken away from your family for three Tuberculosis, years. Tuberculosis, arranged marriages. Yeah. It's like not an easy life, but you can just see that she's children. Like, yeah. Like a lot of responsibility, but you can just see yeah. that she's just so happy to be making art. That's and amazing. it makes her so happy. Yeah. So throughout the 1960s, Kenajouac's prints and drawings became highly prized and sought after. In 1960, she created her piece, The Enchanted Owl, which is probably her most recognizable work. It's also the one featured in the minute. Mm -hmm. By 1962, she had garnered enough acclaim to attract the attention of director John Feeney. Feeney was a New Zealand-born director of documentary films. He worked with the New Zealand National Film Unit, the National Film Board of Canada, and made films and did photography in Egypt. Wow. He was nominated for two Academy Awards by this point. Feeney proposed filming a documentary about Kenajouac that would feature her life, the life in the Canadian Arctic, and the Western Baffin Co-op. The documentary was filmed over the course of three months, which Kenajouac found arduous and tiresome. <laughs> <laughs> Such a diva. <laughs> Such a diva. It was so tiring at times I threatened John Feeney that I would quit before it was finished. Uh... But it was impossible to quit. Because Mr. Feeney just wouldn't let me. She sounds <laughs> She's great. She's like, I don't. I want to leave. No, you can't. Yeah. Damn it. She's like, I'm done here. I really don't it's want. Like, no. Yeah, and it's like it makes so much sense because she kind of goes on to explain why it's it's arduous. Uh, she was like, it was very tedious work. We had to keep shooting the same things over and over again, yeah. time after time, to the point where one just felt like walking out on the whole thing, which <sighs> totally makes sense. Like totally. if you've never 
especially if you didn't grow up watching films. No, no, no. The why, like, it would make no sense. It's like, what do you mean I have to walk from here to there again? Right. Like, and what again, do you mean you didn't get like the shot? This is like that Western culture coming in and, yeah, and it's like, this is the way that he grew up, like the director. Mm-hmm. This is the way that Feeney grew up and this is the stuff he's been doing so it's just natural to him and for her this is completely unnatural and out of the element. Yeah, so. and it would like totally make no sense. It's like, what do you mean I didn't walk right? Yeah. Like, what do you mean we have to do it again? Yeah, I get that. Kenneth remembered being particularly furious when during the filming her children fell off of the sled. So there's a shot and the children fall off the sled. I really gave it to him then, she said. (laughs) Safety first, Feeney. So the documentary, which was titled Eskimo Artist Kenneth not a word we would use anymore, but that's what the film is called, was released by the National Film Board and it captured the printmaking process as well as the artist's home life. You can actually watch it. It's free oh. to anybody who goes to the National Film Board website. And I watched it. It's, it's, it's very interesting. That's actually. awesome. Yeah. Uh, it was nominated for Best Short Documentary at the Academy Awards. That's unbelievable. That's incredible. <laughs> I love that. Well, feel good story. Well, feel good story. It hasn't gotten worse yet. I mean, it got bad is for it, a while. Is but it, it has getting gotten better? Worse? It's, it's not going to get too bad. Okay, okay. Yeah, nothing really tragic. All right. Like, sad things happen, but not tragic. Okay. While the filmmaking process was tiresome and artificial, the money she earned from it enabled Johnny Boy to purchase his own canoe and achieve his independence as a hunter. Oh, Johnny. Was, I know. This was an added benefit to the family, which by this time had a daughter, Agio. I didn't really look up how to say the one. Whoops. And an adopted son, Ashevek. Uh, she's also credited the film with increasing her popularity in the art world. Kenneth Joack's financial success, however, was not always admired within her own community. The right. fact that she was a woman in her early 30s earning significantly more money than anyone else in the camp argued, angered many of the men, but it did not prevent her from continuing her work. Kenneth Joack urged in an interview that she did not know exactly how much money her pieces garnered, as some of, it, some of the earnings were given to her in cash and the rest of it was kept in the bank. Right. But she did not think that she was much wealthier than the rest of the people in our community. I don't seem to earn much more than anybody else, she said. What the film highlights, as do Kenneth Joack's reflections on it, are perhaps her most defining character uh, as an artist. Despite her increasing acclaim and global recognition, she rarely desired to leave the Arctic or abandon her traditional ways of life. She and her family moved to Cape Dorset in 1966 so her children could attend school. However, the family did continue to occupy traditional camps as well. Kenishwak admitted the old ways of life were increasingly difficult to maintain, but she personally could do with or without the comforts of modern living. However, she confessed in an interview that she still preferred camp life to settlement living. Kenishwak increasingly traveled for her work. She exhibited her art across Canada, but also internationally. In 1969... She and Johnny Boy traveled to Ottawa to collaborate on a mural, which was eventually hung in the Canadian Pavilion at Expo 70 in Osaka, Japan. Wow. In 1980, she traveled to Rotterdam. Yeah. She traveled to Rotterdam to present the Inuit Print Exhibition, which was opened by the Queen of Netherlands. In 1991, she went to Seoul, South Korea to attend the opening of an exhibition of prints and sculptures. Girl had a life. She had a life. Yeah. And like, imagine like, so... In 1980 is when she goes to the Netherlands. Yeah. And then in 91, she goes to South Korea. So she's, like, not young. No. She's, like, in her 60s, I believe, by yeah. that point. And yeah. she's just like, I'm ready to go. Oh. 
When she was asked about leaving Cape Dorset and the surrounding area, she answered, I sometimes tell my children that it would be nice to live in the South if I could speak English. Mm -hmm. Then I would go down South to work where I could live comfortably. I like the city of Ottawa, and I never get homesick when I'm the here. Mm -hmm. Of all the places I've visited, I like Ottawa the best. The Netherlands received a less favorable review from Bushwick. (laughs) She said it's always foggy, and the structure of the town was so strange. I just didn't feel comfortable there. Even if there appeared to be blue skies, it was still foggy, and there was water everywhere you went. Yeah. Amsterdam I don't think she'd like Nova Scotia very much. No, I don't think Nova Scotia would be a Very similar vibe. Yeah. Oh, she's funny. <laughs> she is funny. And that's the thing. Like, you watch her interviews, and she, like, clearly has such a sense of humor about everything, and she really doesn't take it all that seriously. It's great. It's just, like, a breath of fresh air. Yeah. <laughs> Throughout the 1970s, Kenneth Schwax experienced some turmoil in her personal life. Her husband of 26 years, Johnny Boy, died in 1972. Mm. Just she, of old age, or? I think so. Yeah. She remarried a year later. However, her new husband passed away in 1977. And then in 1978, she married her third husband, <laughs> Jonas C. Girl, e. get it. <laughs> there is not, there's not much written about her later two marriages, however. Seemingly, the tabloids were not particularly interested in the romantic life of Kenneth Wack. All right. Good for her. Good for her. Knows what she wants. Knows what she needs. She wanted another man. (laughs) (laughs) Despite her considerable fame, Kenijwak never thought of herself as exclusively an artist, but rather considered her artistic career to be just one facet of her life. I don't put any aspect of my experience first as the main things. She stated in Jean Blanchett's uh, Kenijwak, a book-length study of her work. So it's a book about her called Kenijwak. Very cool. <laughs> Kenijwak's unwillingness to view herself primarily as an artist is consistent with the traditional Inuit culture. Living conditions demanded that men and women develop competency in a wide range of skills in order to survive. What is conventionally considered to be a work of art is valued by Inuit people primarily for its usefulness, as a ritual item, as a piece of clothing, as a source of income. Mm. As Kenijwak told Blow Blodgett. Blodgett? There's a lot of, a lot of names. A lot of names here. <laughs> the main reason why I create things is because of my children, my family. Although Kenneshwak achieved more success than any Inuit artist before her, she remained firmly within the culture of the Inuit people. While she replaced her traditional igu- igloo with a modern framed house, she did not give up her love for the outdoors. She traveled well into her 70s and 80s with Jonasi, her new husband, mm-hmm. and six children to some of her old campsites to hunt and fish during the summer, living off the land as she did as a child. Wow. While family obligations limited the amount of time she devoted to her work, she never gave up drawing and carving. I continue to do so primarily for the future these works of art will guarantee my children, she noted in Kenijwak. When I'm dead, I'm sure there will still be people discussing my art. Kenijwak died of lung cancer in 2013. The Canadian press and art community mourned the loss of a pioneer and a visionary. By her death, her art had spanned an incredible range of mediums like drawing, carving, beadwork, printing, and stained glass. She was honored with the Order of Canada, the Order of Nunavut, and the Governor General's Award for Visual and Media Arts, as well as several honorary doctorates. She has been featured on both national postage and currency. Her legacy continues through the continued work at the West Bath and Co-op and her family. In particular, her nephew, Tim, is an acclaimed artist in his own right, and the two were featured in a joint exhibit at the Art Gallery of Ontario. 
and her granddaughter narrates the Heritage Minute that Kenneth is featured in. You, you know you've made it in Canada when you get on a stamp. Yeah, definitely. Like, that's when you know, like, you have you have done something for yourself. Like, William Shatner, on a stamp. Stamp. You know? <laughs> like, Justin Bieber, stamp. stamp. Yeah. Yeah. Viola order, Desmond, stamp. Kenneth, like, Order of Canada, get out of here. Yeah. You just need to be on a stamp. Right? Yeah. yeah. Governor General's medal, pshaw. Pshaw. Stamp. Stamp. That's when, that's when stamp you're successful. Stamp me. <laughs> Put us on a stamp. Yeah, that's the life and times of Kenneshwak Ashavek. That was such a good, like, feel-good story. Yeah, that was definitely more feel-good than our other two episodes. Definitely. <laughs> Which is great. She's, and she's we need like, some brevity in life. It's a girl power story, and she overcame some stuff, and yeah, I love think, it. Yeah, I think the main thing is that, as an artist, she really never took it so seriously. Like, no, and it, she no, seemed, nothing about it feels pretentious. Yeah, it's genuinely just like this is how I'm feeling, so this is what I'm going to draw, and I'm right. only doing it because I love to do it. And this is what I'm going to make today. I'm feeling like this, so I'm going to make this, and, yeah. and I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Grace. No problem, Linnea. That was a great one. Yeah. And thank you to everyone listening. Make sure that you go and follow us, Minute Women Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. We'd really appreciate that. And please let us know other minutes that you'd like us to cover. Let us know what you want to hear about here at Minute Women Podcast. And wherever you're listening to this podcast, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.